You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Mazza, Neil and Pete. This week we're looking back at another one of our favourite football sides from the last 30 years. So pick up your Lucas Aid, lace up those Predators and go with Four at the Back. We're up north, looking at Middlesbrough's dramatic 96-97 season. It started with such optimism, looking to cement themselves into the elite of English football, a new stadium, and one of the world's most exciting imports in Janino putting the strings in midfield. And they just added one of Europe's most wanted marksmen in Fabrizio Ravanelli leading the line. It ended with heartbreak, more than most football fans encounter in their lives, let alone in one season twice defeated at Wembley in cup finals and relegated on the final day, their fate sealed by a most controversial three-point deduction for postponing a fixture, a deduction that saw them drop from 13th to 19th in a season of fine margins in the bottom half of the league. Tonight, we revisit that crazy season, relive some of our favourite memories and try to answer the question, how did a team containing Janino, Emerson and Ravanelli playing well get relegated? We start in the summer of 1995. Borough have been promoted from Division 1 and have set themselves the task of staying in the Premier League. Pete, tell us how they went about it. I think to really understand this, you've got to go back a year earlier than that. Um, Of course. Yeah, because, I mean, Borough had been in the first Premier League season, which we spoke about last week, and I can remember them not really making a huge impression on me because I'm a, I'm a young kid at the time and Borough were one of those sides that didn't really make too much too many waves they were either the, whichever way you want to look at it they were either the biggest of the provincial sides or the smallest of the big clubs and they were usually kind of pogoing between the top tier and the second tier for most of their history very rarely lower than that but they'd never been to a major cup final they'd never won the top division you know the kind of scale of the of the club that I'm talking about. So all of a sudden, the the big thing that didn't really make many waves, but I think it's probably the most important thing, was Steve Gibson buys the club in 1994. What did make waves and shattered so many of my perceptions about Middlesbrough at the time was they got Brian Robson in as player manager from Man United. He just left Man United in the summer of 1994. And this is an England player with the pedigree of anyone else that you might care to name. Really. He's an elite level England legend and he's going to Middlesbrough in the second tier. That really opened eyes and, and made people think about Middlesbrough in a, in a very different way. And they were promoted at the first attempt. Uh, I think they win the the second tier by some distance. Uh, they move to a new stadium. They move from Ayrson Park, which is a bit of a, a dive, to the the impressive uh, new Riverside Stadium. And you know he gets some some transfers in, like Neil Cox. Uh, we spoke about last week. Joins from Aston Villa and actually gets a chance to show what he can do. By the time ninety five ninety six comes around, they're into some real momentum, and they're able to put up 
a lot of um, good performances playing with a kind of, I suppose it's it's sort of a 4-3-3. Uh, Nick Barmby is a crucial part of it, is the, the, the big marquee signing of the summer. They, they break their transfer record to bring Nick Barmby in from Tottenham, where he'd been... Uh, sort of surplus to requirements after um, Spurs abandoned their hyper-attacking formations under Ozzy Ardiles. And so he moves to Borough and becomes a real force playing up front with uh, Jan Agi Fjortoft and a personal kind of hipster favourite, uh, Craig Hignett, is a player that stuck with me for all these years. And they played some really nice stuff, kind of moving around, playing with a lot of speed and Fjortoft kind of working these guys in and around them. Beyond that, they had a, a really solid defence. Uh, Neil Cox played on the uh, one of the fullback positions. Derek White, the Scotland international, was the other. Um, and then at centre-back, they had Nigel Pearson, who was probably nearing the end of his career, but was still a dependable force in the centre of the defence as club captain. And Steve Vickers, who for about two years always just seemed to be in the right place at the right time to cut out any danger. So they went on a long stretch through the middle of the 95-96 season where they didn't pick up a lot of points. But either side of that, they were such a good team to watch, especially going forward. I think, I think it's... it's the, the story of Middlesbrough is, in many ways, just a microcosm of the Premier League to me. Um, you know, provincial side, new all-seater stadium... Uh, Headline-grabbing chairman, former player, prominent former player, who is their manager. And, of course, most people will have seen that absolutely ridiculous photo of Robson with a manager's kit on the, oh, uh, God, that's the, the top and the, <laughs> and the shorts and socks on the bottom. Um, like sort of a pre-John Terry, John Terry. Um, you know, and... and the money that was coming into the Premier League by 95, 96 was obviously phenomenal. Um, and the foreign players have started to come in. And obviously it starts with the big sides and it starts to then filter down till almost it, it's kind of like Serie A in the 80s, right? Even bang average teams have got a couple of genuine superstars. Um, and, you know, Borough are a great example of a team who go out and get, um, you know, Ravinelli from Juventus. Um, they go and get um, Janino, who's a kind of, you know, up-and-coming Brazilian attacking midfielder. Uh, and Emerson, who's a, you know, up-and-coming Brazilian box-to-box midfielder. Yeah. Um, so just to jump in quickly, just want to point out that Janino comes in a good few months before the other two. He, yes. he comes he comes in 95-96, so they sort of adapt to, to him being in the side. And then you get the end of that season, and then the big splurge comes in the summer. Yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, the Janino signing was an interesting one because it, he was he, he, he had a lot of hype. He was a player that I remember being talked about a lot in football magazines, you know, for a good year or so before Middlesbrough signed him. So it was, it was a, a coup, a massive coup for them to get him. Oh, yeah, he's called the next big thing. Yeah, young player, very young player, you know. Um, and it's just this climate where the Premier League, you know, Chelsea have got their kind of foreign legion coalescing, um, you know, around Viali and Hullet and... Um, 
you know, and uh, Zola and stuff. And 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 so you, you're starting to get this more cosmopolitan feeling Premier League we've spoken about before. But the fact that it was like Borough, who, I mean, when I started watching football in the, you know, mid to late 80s, you know, they were the, the, the team in your sticker album that you just didn't care about. It's really the best thing I can describe Borough as being, you know, just endless Bernie Slaven duplicates. Um, like, <laughs> like that's that was what Burrow were to me. So when they suddenly got like this bizarre sense of glamour, um, yeah, it, it, I think it was just a sign of what the Premier League had become. Um, and you know, obviously, I think you'd say that that by. I don't know, maybe 2002, 2003 or something like that, there's a bit of a crash and then the the mid-table clubs go back to looking like mid-table clubs. But for a period of time, mid-table clubs are genuine world superstars in. Um, And the Premier League hasn't really had that up to this point. They don't really, um, other than Janina, they don't really start to look very cosmopolitan um, in this first season where they stay up fairly handily. Uh, I think... They probably get about mid forties kind of points tally. Uh, Janino joins in the middle of the season, I think. I can't remember exactly when, but they're still they're still very much that Northern European look to the side. You know, they've got an all British back four, and I think the midfield is you know, Jamie Pollock and Robbie Musto, who isn't fancied by Robson originally, but forces his way back into the side and ends up playing. I think he might even play in the UEFA. Um, the UEFA Cup final for them, although maybe that's a, a bridge too far. Uh, I haven't looked yeah, that up. Robbie Musto swaps in my. Uh, Robbie Musto is your Bernie Slaven. Yeah, um, millions of them. Mm. And of course, the the good young feel good story, the the Stuart Downing before there was a Stuart Downing was was Phil Stamp coming through. Um, so there wasn't a huge amount of cosmopolitan feeling to it, other than Janino was a harbinger of things to come. And then in the summer, it just before that 96-97 season, which is incidentally when Zola and all these people are coming uh, into Chelsea. So that, so it's a, it is a wider thing. But Borough just goes crazy. And I think they spend, is it about £7 million to, to bring Ravinelli in from Juventus? Uh, where he's, S- £7 million on him, yeah. yeah he and was he's very st- much um, surplus to requirements at Juve at this time. And that, yeah, but it was ex- still crazy. It was ex- I mean, it was exciting because... As we've discussed before, you know, Channel 4 have been showing Syria on TV uh, through, you know, 90, you know, 92 onwards. Um, and so, you know, for those of us that had, had watched Ravinelli play for Juve and had watched Zola play for Palmer, um, it was, and obviously had grown up with Hullet being, you know, arguably in the top three or four players in the world through all that time. It, it was incredibly exciting to see these players come in. And then you've also got Janino and Emerson who are, you know, Brazilian for one thing, and everyone loves a Brazilian. Um, and also um, not just kind of past it, you know, uh, fading stars, but genuinely up and coming young players uh, approaching their prime. And, and I think that was, that was what was a little bit different about what Borough did, you know. I mean, obviously Chelsea took 
uh, Viali at the end of his career and Hullet at the end of his career. Desai, when he came in towards the end of his career, um, you know, obviously Zola they took pretty much in his prime. Uh, but it, it, it was a bit different with Barrow because although Ravanelli probably, you know, was, was um, you know, approaching the, the twilight somewhat, obviously had, the, had an amazing season this season. Um, you know, Emerson Janino were, were real prospects. And I think that was what's so exciting about it. And it got even more exciting on the opening day uh, when all that hype was kind of justified to a degree when I can't remember whether they were home or away. I think they were probably at home, but they, uh, they, were, draw, yeah, they draw three all with Liverpool and you get a Ravenelli hat trick. So it's the perfect start to the season in many ways. And it's the the kids in the playground. You know, we all were doing the Ravenelli shirt over the head goal celebration yep. through, Absolutely. <laughs> through that whole era. You don't see that much anymore, do you? Do you get a yellow for that now? They were yeah, really yellow, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, actually say, they actually say you, he, he was risking reprimand from the very start, which is why he starts wearing a T-shirt underneath his shirt, because apparently it was a new Premier League edict that you weren't allowed to take off your shirt or show your chest during a match, because what if the kids see it or something? So, um, and, and you can see he sort of, there's a few times where he does it and he literally does it for a second. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get fined. Um, and then it, by the end of the season, he sort of abandoned it and he's he's picking up boom mics instead. <laughs> One of the reasons why Juve were OK with moving him on was because obviously Ravanelli was a pure finisher. You know, he wasn't going to give you much um, in build up play. Um, you know, it's not like he was going to be... Um, you know, running around the midfield, getting himself involved in the play. He was a pure goal scorer, um, but that, but he was very, very good at being a pure goal scorer. And, um, you know, that's why he just goes out and scores bucket loads of goals in this season. And it was, it was incredibly exciting to see, uh, to see a player like him in the Premier League. And some of his finishing, uh, when you watch the goals back, you know, he, he, he sort of scores so many goals where he just, precision slides it under the keeper with barely any power at all uh you don't see strikers score goals like that anymore maybe Keith's has got a lot better but but it was it was incredible sort of precision finishing you know uh and sometimes he, he would just bang one from an angle and it would just fly in uh you know lots of rough tap-ins you know but a couple in the fa cup uh run where he literally just bundles it over the line um yeah, like sort of tremendously exciting player to watch. He was always just running around, trying to make space, running in behind, getting on players' shoulders, making those runs across the near post. You know, he was just somebody that had an incredible eye for goal. I mean, if and if you didn't, what I really loved about, you know, especially Ravanelli in that team, like if you didn't know he's Fabrizio Ravanelli from Turin or wherever he was from, you'd think he was a boat player for his, his local club, you know. He was—he looked so excited to be playing for for Borough. He, he, enthusiastic all the time, just really, really into it. You know, you'd honestly believe you know he's coming up to his testimonial season or something. He, he for a club that have just signed him, he, he looked like he'd been there forever. He just seemed to fit so well. And it's always like magical when, you know, when the fans embrace somebody like that. I mean, I know from my own experience with Jurgen Klinsmann, like that sort of transformative effects that uh, 
a marquee, you know, foreign player can have on your club. You know, it, it does lift everybody because suddenly it's like you've got this this kind of name brand player that's not only good, he's actually winning the hearts and minds of the whole league. And that's an incredibly exciting thing. You know, Zola was the same at Chelsea. Like, who's ever had a bad word to say about Gianfranco Zola? You know, Tino Berg- is the same in Newcastle. Yeah, but Spree, Love him. Bergkamp at, at Arsenal. You know, these are players that that transcend club loyalties. And if you want to do the kind of, you know, history of the Premier League and the self-regard the Premier League has for itself, you know, you kind of have to go back to this genesis of, and, and say, actually, yeah, at this point, it was the most excitingly because, um, you know, we were sort of getting these marquee foreign players facing off against each other uh, week on week and watching them match the day. And you could get genuinely excited about players that played for other clubs. Um, has, there, has there ever been a player who's who's only played one season in the Premier League who's made that much of an impact on our memories and on and on the Premier League in general? Well, he had a spell at Derby later on. Yeah, uh, best like re- a regrettable I, spell at Derby. I genuinely but... had forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't um, count. Yeah, where, yeah. Where, he, where he was the definitive old pro looking for the shillings at, at Derby. He, they hate him. He, he he burned through all the goodwill he had at Borough uh, with the Derby fans because of just how <laughs> they seriously think he's like the worst thing that happened to the club. But yeah, no, I mean, but I totally take your point in that, yeah, he has this, you know, like in terms of a one season impact, if you want to sort of rephrase the question that way, mm. he's certainly, he's certainly up there. I mean, I mean, again, Klinsman's another one. Of course, he did another loan spell with us after he'd left the first time. But, but otherwise, you know, Klinsman would be one of those. Um, mm. Trying to think. Those are the two, aren't they, really? Yeah. I'm trying to think there's another one that didn't, you know, didn't stay. All I mean, that there's, long. there's players that didn't stay all that long. I mean, Espria was one, Anelka at Arsenal, I suppose, would have fallen into that category had he not come back. Yeah. Um, and played for uh, every single team in the Premier League. He, he, <laughs> did, he played for most of them, yeah. Um, is the, I mean, sort of Anelka is kind of like, you know, the Ebra of his day, isn't he? Just a sort of, you know, a, it's kind of like a world class player that becomes a journeyman pro. Ebra had a good season. Oh, he, he, he had two seasons. But one was, was, was it? Oh yeah, he extended, old. didn't he? Yeah. He was out with for in, with a knee for the, most of it, though, wasn't he? That second one. True. Yeah. yeah. Um, Henrik, on his way. How long did Henrik Larson play? Was an extra half a season that's a good, on loan. That's a good. Yeah, that's a. I don't even think he, he scored that many goals, did he? He was just. He just. He was yeah. just good. Yeah. <laughs> good link there. Like, he was that's just actually, that sums up Herrick Larson's career. Good. Yeah. Just bloody <laughs> good. 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 Um, Moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, Michael so, Bridges. There you go. I mean, phrasing it another way, like if you look at, at, at players that have scored 30 Premier League goals, I think, is that what Robin Lee got that season? He, he got 30 in all competitions. He I got don't 16 think Premier League goals. Oh, right. So it's 30 so all comp, right. I think but this was a season where Shearer got 25, Ferdinand got 16, Fowler and Wright both got about 20 each. So, you know, he, he was sort of keeping up with some seriously established Premier League goal scorers. 
in a struggling team. The thing to remember is that uh, Ravinelli scored about as many goals against the likes of Hensford and Hereford and and all those kind of sides uh, as he did in the league. So that's why he ends up on 32 or whatever it is. He scored four against Hereford, didn't he? Yeah. Well, fill your, fill your boots. Why not? No, no. I mean, at, at the start of the year, it did look like he was going to be in the, the Shearer bracket because after the first couple of games, uh, he's obviously got that hat-trick on the opening day, but then they go... Um, they, beat, they, they beat West Ham 4-1, he scores. I mean, Emerson actually gets the highlights for that goal. That rocket he scores against West Ham is, is astonishing. But then Coventry, they, they put four past them again, and it's, I think, two each for Giannino and Ravinelli. Uh, is he on the score sheet again against Everton? I can't, I can't remember, um, but... He scores against Sunderland, right? Um, and then, yeah, it just it, so he, he he starts the season. He scores six in five mm. um, in the league, and then he stops scoring, and so did Borough. Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, part of it. They look like they're going to be free scoring for fun, and until, they also about, decide, until the middle of until the middle of September, and then it sort of stops. Really, they also decide they don't need Nick Barnby anymore. Um, so they well, they yeah. Start- they sell him to Everton. Um, a decision which, that comes back to haunt them. Yes. Yeah, not a great bit of business. That I mean, I think they, they, they make a small profit on him. But it, well, I, I remember it being a bit of an. It was a bit of a weird one at the time. I think. Barnby had a uh, weird career. Actually, he did, didn't he? Because the thing is with right. Well, I mean, obviously, as a Spurs fan, like we took him from Hull when he was a young boy. I think. We took him home when he was about 17 or 18 and he came through um, with us. And he, had, he had massive homesickness for the for the north for the whole time he was at Spurs. He was very, very homesick. And one of the reasons why he went to Barrow wasn't he was still getting um, enough games for us. But but he was just he was just desperate to get back up north. And um, when he, you know, whenever he kind of was at a club it was he was a lovely football Nick Barnby but he never quite had he never quite had that eye of the tiger like as all the talent hard working but mentality wise there was just something that held him back and he had a very very good career but he he would make strange moves at certain times like he would go to a club seem to establish himself and then he'd kind of move on again and he does that Lots of times through his career, ends up having lots of clubs, um, and he ends up back at. I think he ends up back at Hull in the end, doesn't he? His hometown I, club. Yeah, he I'm not sure I recognise that characterisation, to be honest. I mean, does he does he not move on because Middlesbrough make a weird decision? Having been their best player in '95, '96, they decide to sell him a couple of months in, and it's a disaster. But then he's at Everton, and he's brilliant to the point where he gets a move to Liverpool. And then injuries basically is what does for him after that. I mean, my my perception of Barnby was always that he had a lot more talent than he probably showed. I, I think his career is a little bit unfulfilled. I have to say. I mean, it's having just... having watched him in his early days at Spurs, I have to say, I, I think he he, and he actually, didn't actually a lot end of these up. highlights. A lot of these highlights we we, we see here. I mean, from that 95-96 season, it struck me that he was a little bit like Harry Kewell in that lead side we talked about last season, and that he was pretty much involved in everything that was good about it. Like, everything went through him. Um, he, he was, was always of... a threat. He created space for other people. 
that was trio kind of like a, in... a Peter Beardsley sort of, you know, that was when he was coming through. That was the comparison was that he could yeah. be, you know, the next Peter Beardsley. And I don't think he ever quite got to those levels. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, I, as you know, as a Spurs fan, he, he, I had posted him on my wall, you know, he was a, a lovely footballer. I had a, an awful lot of time for Nick Barnby. Um, but, you know, he, I think he, he doesn't know. He just, he just never seemed to, um, to maybe hit the heights that I thought he was. I, I mean, think it's to, fair to say he didn't he didn't quite live up to his potential. You know, he had a good career. He could have had a great career. Yeah. Yeah, I just wonder how much of that is actually just down to, to those injuries while he was at Liverpool. Because, I mean, he obviously moves to get more first-team football. And to be honest, that three-man attack in 95-96 is actually as good to watch as anything that comes in the more memorable season a year later. They are, they're seriously good and underappreciated. Then he moves on to Everton, and Everton spend more than Borough had, which I think means now two sides have broken their record to sign him. Then when he moves to Liverpool, they pay six million for him. So it's going up and up. He's impressing people all the way through, and then injuries blight him. I, th- I think we've seen that story so often that it just feels kind of like maybe there wasn't anything wrong with him. It just kind of didn't work out for him. Oh, no, I don't remember him pulling up any trees at Liverpool particularly. No, no, a weird Liverpool era. Yeah, weird Liverpool era generally. But I don't know how much he plays in a team with Owen Fowler, etc., etc. No, I think no, I think they were thinking of him more of a midfielder by that point than as an attacker. Yeah, which obviously changes the the equation. If you think of um, him as a Julier winger, it's going to be a very different setup to a Brian Robson winger playing off Hignett doing that kind of interchange with Fiatoft, isn't it? Julio's yeah. wingers were never. I, th- right. I think here he was he was more of a striker, wasn't he? He was he was seen as a as a serious goal threat for Borough. The uh, um, the the position he played in the uh, the five man Aussie attack <laughs> 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 was was he he kind of like he had sort of Klensman in the middle with Barnby and Sheringham either side of him, and then um, like Dimitrescu and Anderson outside of that. <laughs> so he's kind of an inside left. Yeah, that's kind of where uh, he was I mean, playing that season. That, that's how I always see him at Borough as well, you know, when you think about him and Hickney either side of, of, of a striker. Yeah, it's a narrow 4-3-3, isn't it? I, I, you call them winger for shorthand, but they, they are playing more He's, like three strikers. It's, it's the Salah and Mane thing nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, an inverted winger. The, you know, the... Um, yeah, it's mean, certainly, I think, inside right and inside left. It's just like those, term, those terms have yeah. worn out of use, but it probably it's probably more accurate. It's perfect there, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, a, a word on the Brazilian boys. Janinho is probably one of the most talented footballers I've ever seen in terms of his ability just to just to beat the man and create some space. I think there were there were teams up and down the country who were just scared of coming up against him in form. I think there's possibly an element of inconsistency on his part throughout this season, looking at how Borough as a whole perform. But in all of those games that they win and play well in, he is he is there. He is he is dominant in those games. If you stopped him, you stopped Borough, and I think yeah, good teams knew that. Um... I think you know. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say. <laughs> I wouldn't say he's a flat track bully, but but he, you know, he obviously. Um, if you suck a man marker on him, then that obviously changes the equation a little bit. But it was an era of great number tens in the Premier League. We've discussed this before. You know, we just with Arsenal, uh, Arsenal and Bergkamp, and you know, Zola at Chelsea, 
um, Canstar at United. You know, you, you had these great number 10s playing. And I know wore seven, but, you know, his position was 10. Um, so, yeah, it was a great era for that. You, you had lots and lots of them and they were brilliant to watch. Um, and Juninho had that, you know, he had, again, he was, it's that sh- short little player, great dribbler, unbelievable eye for a pass, free kicks, nothing better is there. Emerson was actually my favourite of the three. I mean, he, he was, was he was the one that I, I wanted to have at Newcastle. I mean, he had he had that um, you know a lot of what makes sort of Vieira Batie exciting at Arsenal. Like he mm. he kind of had that about him, didn't he? But also a bit of a bit of Brazilian flair to go with it. Like he has an unbelievable engine, like charging up and down the pitch, smashing in bangers, winning tackles, but also obviously. Has a, has a bit of a, you know, a bit of a trick to him as well. Real different type of play. I don't see many players like that with, with that skill set that he had. You know, he'd get in there, he was a, he, he weren't a little lad, was he? He certainly had a bit of uh, size, size behind him. But you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't see it by the way he moved. You know, it it, it wasn't like Chris Waddle at Sunderland. Um, <laughs> You know, he was, yeah, it, yeah just language I mean, is the word. Yeah, it, uh, mad, mad, insane bit of talent. It, you know, he, he could pretty much do everything you'd want from a central midfielder. He'd sort of move in sort of weird directions, like he just, he'd suddenly find himself in space you didn't expect to see him in, um, and he had that ability to arrive late and and an absolute rocket of a right foot. Like I, I don't think he scored any goals from less than 25 yards. So United, United I think, uh, thought they were getting that when they bought Anderson. Mm. And he sort of, you know, ended up being a kind of, you know, fairly stodgy defence midfielder for United for whatever reason. Um, the other one that I thought of when I was watching those highlights back was... Um, before Jose got his hands on John O. B. Mikel, you know, John O. B. Mikel was like the sort of the great hope of Nigerian football, like, you know, this unbelievably talented, you know, do it all midfielder. And then Jose was like, right, you're going to sit in front of the back four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you never really got to see that version of John O. B. Mikel because uh, Jose, Jose did him out of it. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's, you know, Emerson was that do it all number eight midfielder. Um, and again, those have always been popular in English football. Is it a um, what a harbinger of the the downside to this Borough team and why they eventually fall out of the league? That Emerson plays that kind of game, and he is the ultimately the replacement for Jamie Pollock, who moves on to Bolton, I think. Mm. Uh, but Jamie Pollock was the steal in the Borough midfield, so you've taken that out and replaced it with. Uh, certainly a guy was no slouch and as we said he's physically strong and big but he's a very different sort of player he's, and he's belting them in and he's and you to be honest you're more likely to remember great goals from Emerson and than you are great kind of physical performances and tackles or anything like that is that maybe what why the defensive record was so shoddy this year well, Robson was just not tactically the best was he 
Uh, I, I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm actually, a, I was a really big fan of Jamie Pollock. I thought he was going to be, you know, huge player going forward as a youngster. He is a huge um, player. Well, yeah, he, he, he proved to be a huge player, but, you know, um, yeah, I, I thought it had a hell of a lot of potential in here. He was still pretty young at this point, wasn't he? He ends up Pollock. in City, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, I think he does at one point. He goes to he goes to Man City for a while. He went to he went to Osasuna between Middlesbrough and Bolton for some mad yeah. reason. Well, he does get lost on holiday or something. <laughs> He's on a, a lad's holiday and was like, mm, yeah, Osasuna, I'll stay here, play two games, and then about twenty five percent of Premier League players have played for Osasuna at one time or another. Yeah. <laughs> Stan, no, Stan Connell played for Oviedo, didn't he? Yeah. There's all sorts weird of like... Spell. I, I, don't know, I think there was this little spe- there was this little sort of glut of Premier League players going to play in Spain for a bit after the uh, there was a Dream Team uh, storyline where Carl Fletcher ends up playing at Malaga or something. Mallorca, yeah. And then suddenly, oh. <laughs> suddenly you just get this stream of like average Premier League players going to play in uh, in the the second tier of Spanish football. It's a bit what? of a worry that Premier League footballers were taking career advice from a Sky One soap opera, isn't it? Yeah. I, again, not a surprise. Um, <laughs> Shaky on the facts once again, I think. <laughs> quite possibly. Um, I mean, the, the other thing about that strikes me about Borough is that there's there's not really a regular goalkeeper throughout the season. We've we've talked like throughout. Um, the last season or so that we've done, there's generally sort of a, a constant presence at the back. Um, Borough don't go through just two keepers. They go through four over yeah. the course of the season. They, they end up with Mark Schwarzer, who obviously ends up being the most solid of the lot. And there's... Um, ends up being one of the great Premier League keepers, Mark Schwarzer. Fantastic. I mean, he played at Borough for quite a few years and then obviously ended up with... Fulham and then eventually Chelsea, um, but it, there's an there's an obvious upturn in form when he's he's there. I mean, um, I think he ends the season. I mean, Borough in the league they only lose twice um, after the end of March. Uh, sorry, after the start of March. Um, there's just this middle section where um, they first they. Um, Alan Miller starts the season and gets sold. Gary Walsh had been brought in. The can I just jump in a sec, Joe? Because it's it's weirder than you're telling here. Because the previous year, one of Robson's big buys is Gary Walsh, who, yeah. as, you, as you remember, is you know he bypasses Les Seeley in '93, '94, whenever it is at Man United to to earn his place uh, there as as Peter Schmeichel's understudy, and he's eventually getting this move to be a number one and show what he can do. And they keep faith with Alan Miller for a little bit, to you know, because he had the shirt, and I suppose you have to lose the shirt to some level. And then how about 10, 12 games into '95, '96, they put Gary Walsh in. And then they start the next season back with Alan Miller over Gary Walsh. And yet still having put him back in over the big sign and decide to sell him, put Gary Walsh back in and then run through two more goalkeepers in the second half of the season. It's a bizarre way to run your, what possibly the most important position on the field. But it's, it's smacks of a, a manager who just doesn't have 
in any of his options. Um, and it's clearly it's their it's their weakest link. I mean, we talked about the defence being you know, relatively stable. Like Vickers and Pearson have played together for a little while. Um, and you know Neil Cox is uh, is there mostly on the right hand side as well. Left back tends seems to be an area of um, of, of, of flux, but mm. generally speaking, it's uh, I think one member starts of the... off with Brank. Uh, Curtis Fleming plays it, but Curtis Fleming was crap from all of my memories of him were crap. Um, well, Branco's the interesting one you mentioned there because he comes in after Janino. He's the second member of the Foreign Legion. And whenever you kind of look at him playing, he was whipping in these great dead balls. And yet he still barely starts a Premier League game, which tells me that the skill was still there, but he wasn't putting in much oh, of a shift. He was, he he was, was very, spent. He was old by then, wasn't he? I mean, he was. He, he must have been 45 yeah. or at least. Yeah. Brazil. <laughs> he, was, Brazil he was only 31 when they signed him. Really? Because he was kind he of was... like one of Brazil's main men in the night. Yeah, he was. He, he was a kid when he came through in the. Yeah, he was. He was about twenty four, twenty five in the in in nineteen ninety, I think. Because uh, he'd come through as a kid about five years before that. I think that's what we discussed when we were talking about the yeah. Brazil team of last season. Um, yeah, I think he was spent. Which, however old he was, he he, he was what uh, everyone kind of feared Ravanelli was going to be when he came and obviously Ravanelli proved a lot of people wrong. Branco proved absolutely nobody wrong in the grand scheme of things. And he was gone within a year. Uh, so yeah, guys like Curtis Fleming had to come in to cover. What so they- yeah, I mean, this, this weird thing where Miller plays 12, Gary Walsh plays 16, uh, Ben Roberts plays 18 games, so 10 Premier League games. Um, and then Schwarzer plays the last seven. Yeah, they brought Schwarzer um, in in that February mm. um, from Bradford, and he'd played in Kaiserslautern in Germany before that. But uh, I think the thing with Gary Walsh ultimately is that he was a he was a solid number two keeper. He wasn't a number one, and I think you saw that whenever the foreigner rule meant that Schmeichel couldn't play, United routinely got battered. Uh, in Europe uh, during that era. Um, So I think Robson almost, you know, being an ex-United guy, he does what young managers often do. You know, he goes back to his old club and um, picks up a player or two. Clayton Blackmore played for this Middlesbrough side as well. Um, The other thing that strikes me about this this Middlesbrough squad, just, you know, they've got a relatively small squad but they play 12 different defenders over the course of the season. Um, they bring in Fester midway through, and obviously he sort of steadies the ship a little bit. Um, I think Blackmore was out injured for, for a fair amount of it. And then so was uh, Pearson. Um, gets so himself was sent off. Yeah, so they, they, they do have injury problems. Um, and I guess that doesn't help either. But there's, there's, there seems to be a fair amount of uncertainty at the back. And, uh, I guess if you don't, if you've not played together that often, particularly if the the man between the sticks isn't the most convincing, then you're going to concede, and they do leak a lot of goals. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, that is that's always going to cost you in the league, isn't it? But should we talk about the bizarre points deduction? Because that that remains the controversy, doesn't it? Because you know, yes, no team with that with those players should be going down crap defense or not uh and but they wouldn't have actually gone down had 
they not had those three points deducted. It's a weird one, isn't it? I mean, just I mean, just for just for context, they 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 cancelled a game um, against Blackburn, uh, which I think it was in December, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and Robson uh, later basically claimed they had twenty three first team players out injured or ill, so they couldn't fulfil the fixture, um, which the Premier League claimed to investigate, and then decided that it wasn't good enough and and it wasn't good enough to give Blackburn Rovers a the three points for the fixture they decided to not reward Blackburn and penalise Middlesbrough instead which obviously had fairly profound implications on on the final league table but yeah it, it was a weird one what did, I, don't, I don't remember a huge amount about it at the time um do, do you guys guys have sort of clear memories of it or i've got vague memories i, I remember I, i'm pretty sure i remember at the time thinking they should have played mm. and I, I reckon if you could if they could if you could have given them like a time machine to go back you know i, I think they take that because i tell you what really hurt them uh, right at the back end of the season where they've got an fa cup semi-final replay uh, Coca-Cola Cup final replay and this game that they should have played much earlier in the season. Take those three games off the table at a critical time where they're in these big cup runs and in a relegation dogfight. They don't go down. Mm, I agree. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they they pick up... Um, was it the home game that was postponed or the, the away game? The away game. The away game. So the away game, they, they drew 0-0. Uh, the home yeah. game, they, they won. Um, and I guess their their argument was that they they would have been in no position to win it um, full stop. So I don't know. Maybe maybe, it, maybe they couldn't have done it. it. It does sound a bit weird though, doesn't it? Like a, a, a professional football team can't raise a team to. Um, no, you, you send a few kids out. Uh, I can't exactly remember, but I do remember at the time I was pretty much on the side of they should go and play. It certainly should be a forfeit. You know. I think it, it smacked of at the time. And it's quite interesting we live in a time of Corona and, um, you know, and, and teams potentially having to to play some kids. I mean, I I watched an NFL game last night where, uh, you know, where the Colts were putting out, you know, some undrafted kid to play offensive linemen because <laughs> they didn't have any players. They were all like Corona'd out. Um, so nowadays you just, you you know, you'd be mandated to play the game, I dare say. Uh, and it smacks, I think, of the time of Borough playing games because they did have this congested fixture list. So it, it was kind of, I think, painted as they pulled a fast one to try and give themselves a breather. And that's why it was looked on so dimly by the league. And If I remember right, they didn't seek permission for it either. They just said, we're not the unit, Yeah, they unit yeah. decided they weren't going to play it. And, it, it would have been a terrible precedent if they'd let them get away with it. They could yeah. not let them work because everyone. Could you imagine Fergie was be like, right, right, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with this. Then. Yeah, they'd never play a game again, would they? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the um, yeah. I think three points actually is generous, really, in the grand scheme of things. You know, um, given that you know financial stuff generally is like a twelve point penalty. 
you'd have to say that three for you know actual shenanigans is probably a little bit a little bit lenient if anything and the fine was 50k which is I mean, like literally peanuts i mean um, i'll tell you what i mean the, the fact that blackburn weren't awarded the points they finished on 42 points that season can you imagine what would have happened if they'd have gone down and they hadn't penalized borough for um for not fulfilling fixture i mean it, it's i was thinking about yeah. the right day now they 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 weren't really given a choice to Premier League. They had to, they had to do it. Yeah, and it went to an appeal, and it was this sort of tortuous process. There's a on that season video. There's a very embarrassing interview that Steve Gibson gives with Brian Robson awkwardly standing there in a beige suit, uh, where it's they kind of defends their integrity and they kind of read out this pre-prepared statement. It's got a sort of whiff of David Brent about it. Um, but it, yeah, it was it was one of those things where they they ended up completely shooting themselves in the foot because you know if you play the game and you've got a load of kids out and you lose, they stay up. Mm. So it yeah. was a, a really dumb decision and you know sort of poetic in its ridiculousness, really, given that that they then went to two cup finals and went down with Juninho crying on the pitch on the last day of the season. I think Robbie Musto um, probably has one of the finest last words about it when he talked about it years later. He said, um, yeah, I can't have a problem with it. I just don't think about it as us getting relegated because it was the club, really. It wasn't the players. Yeah. Uh, they, they they absolutely ballsed up the decision. And so I don't worry about it. Fair, yeah, the league were right. And that doesn't affect me. And I think he's probably spot on there, to be honest with you. Yeah, an interesting aside, actually, um, during the Serie A season, um, when it, when we cut off, yeah, the season just kicked off. Uh, Napoli were meant to travel to Turin to play Juventus, but Italian regional restrictions meant that they couldn't actually leave. Um, they couldn't actually leave Naples. They weren't allowed to leave Naples. And Juve, being Juve, got in the team bus, went to the ground, went out on the pitch. And made a real big show of the fact that Napoli had no show the game, even though the Italian government said they couldn't play. <laughs> oh, Juve! <laughs> Isn't that the Juve thing you've yeah. ever heard ever? Like they actually they got in the team bus, went to the team hotel, travelled to the game, knowing that Napoli wouldn't show up. It was it's basically the it's it's the sort of you know. It's like the most sort of Ric Flair move ever, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and you may wonder why people hate them. <laughs> what would have been great then if um, Atalanta had come out and uh, and played instead? In Napoli's kit. Yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> anyway, back to Borough. Should, um, should we get back to football as well? Because all, <laughs> all that stuff on the kind of outside with the appeals and so on, I mean, it's all very unedifying, isn't it? Absolutely. It was It was, It was. was a very, um, yeah, it's quite interesting that they, they put that in the documentary so uncut because I'd have been too embarrassed to leave that in. But I guess they, they thought they had, a, they had a case. But but obviously, yeah, they, they end up with this, this sort of heartbreaking run-in, don't they, where they make it to two cup finals, lose two cup finals and uh, and go down. I mean, the, the schedule's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ludicrous, I mean, yeah. I mean, you think, I mean... I suppose the amount of chat that's been over the last couple of years about um, player, like the, the workload of players and 
uh, the amount of games they have to play. And obviously this season, they've done away with things like FA Cup replays and um, even extra time, I think, they've just they've just gotten rid of. Um, and they replay the Coca-Cola Cup final after extra time. Yeah. Not only, really do, yes. not, not only do they replay it after extra time, they replay it having led after 118 minutes of the first go around Heskey equalizes with two minutes to go in extra time they, yeah. they were two minutes away from the first major trophy in Middlesbrough's history and then I don't know if you can remember the the goal it's the scrappiest yeah it's the most goal ever isn't it yeah it's, 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 tried to claim it which is yeah it, I mean, as well. the, the pair of them between them uh, it, it's like bouncing over the line slowly can we get it in can we get it in it has the it has the look of sort of the division two playoff final about it, the way that 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 goal goes in. I mean that um, whole final was like the League Two playoff final. And I think fair. and I think the replay goes to extra time as well. I mean it's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, I mean thinking back to a time when every game of the League Cup was 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 two legs. Uh, even the final at one time was two legs. It's just, it's absolutely bonkers. The same like UEFA Cup used to be the same. Like it was all, all two-legged ties all the way through. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the League Cup this season for some reason the second round is a two-leg affair, um, and then the semi-final is a is a two-leg yeah, that, affair as it, as it was for many years actually. Against that, Stockport. that was the norm. That that was always the norm uh, yeah. back in the day that the second round was, well, the first round that the Premier League sides would enter. Uh, was always two-legged. I guess that uh, give the money to the lower league I, club. I guess, I guess. And then there's they have this very untimely three-all draw against Chesterfield in the semi-final of the FA Cup. Sean Dyke oh, penalty. What a yeah. what a game! I mean, we we we're never going to talk about Chesterfield, so we have to take a moment to say they were the real story of the FA Cup that year. I yeah. mean, getting to Probably that. Way, yeah. league, knocking out the teams they did and the fact that the quarterfinal of the FA Cup ended up being Chesterfield against Wrexham. I mean, that's probably the last time that's ever going to happen. But I mean, arguably, it's... arguably that draw does for them because they have to play, they basically have to play three games in about five days because of it. And they lose it's a crazy game and Spurs. They lose at home to Sunderland um, and then they, they get beaten away at Spurs and in between they beat Chesterfield. But by that point, they are right in it. Um, a, t- a terrible Spurs team they lost to as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so do you think then they'd have been better not getting that third goal? And Because obviously they kind of have to come back. They're 2-0 down against Chesterfield and then they go 3-2 up. So do you think they'd have been better just losing that game, not going to their first FA Cup final ever and staying up? You'd have to ask a Borough fan, I guess, like if you could have won two cups and gone down, would you have taken it? I, I think probably they would have said, certainly in 97, you'd probably say yes. Nowadays, with the riches of the Premier League being mm-hmm. what they are, you probably, you might say no. Didn't Wigan have a similar scenario? Yeah, totally. Birmingham, yeah. Birmingham did it as well. If they won the League Cup and went down. Yeah, they did. That's a vintage Brucey. Is that yeah. No, no, McLeish. Finished bloody Wenger is what it was. <laughs> Oba Femi Martins with another tapping. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I suppose this, the, the weird thing is that this, this, their destiny is still in their own hands um, going into the last day of the season. 
they, they finished with three away games. That's harsh. Well, it would have been two if they hadn't rescheduled the Blackburn game. Well, that's true. That is true. It's like that. The, the Blackburn decision just it, it just keeps coming back, doesn't it? Like how much that did for them. Like what a dumb decision that actually was. You know, not only do you get deducted points, you then you then have the game replayed in a period where you've got all these cup semi-finals and finals. It's just completely bonkers. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be a Middlesbrough fan around this time. I mean, to go from those sort of those sort of peaks of euphoria to the the troughs of despair, it's it's not that. It was such a memorable season, though, that fans of Middlesbrough today, with fans then, say it's still their favourite season, even though they got relegated and lost two finals. It, it's just one of those weird moments in a fandom that is really hard to explain, I think, from the outside. But, yeah, it's... So, to be honest, I think you don't even have to go out and say you could have won the two, the two trophies that have taken relegation. I don't think many of them would swap the season. For, and I think, you know... You know for people that don't support big, you know, big, big clubs that win things all the time, it, you know, it's, it's going to sound weird, but winning doesn't, it's, it's not as important, you know, like, I'm sure if you asked Matt, like, as, as, as an Arsenal fan, someone that, that, that grew up routinely just watching them gather trophy after trophy, like, you know, the idea of a glorious failure sounds horrible. But to me, you grew up as a Spurs fan. And like people say, oh, what do you think about that season when Leicester won the league? Or what do you think about the season when, you know, um, you're in the Champions League final against Liverpool and they get a dodgy pen after six minutes? Um, you know, like, I don't see those, those, those seasons as, as, as being missed opportunities or failures or, you know, or bad memories. It's just gratitude for having got that far. <laughs> so, you know, I think if, if, you know, if if uh, I look at some of like, for example, Spurs' recent trophies, like I don't hold the 2008 League Cup in any any great affection. It doesn't mean very much to me at all because that wasn't a particularly interesting team to watch. I don't think we really probably deserved to win it in the first place. But but if you ask me about any of the Pochettino seasons, I would say yeah, brilliant. That was that was some of my favourite my favorite times as a Spurs fan, even though we didn't, you know, inverted commas, win anything. So I, I think it just depends of, on your mindset as a fan and what type of club you support. I think, I think part of it is, is that definitely you're not used to winning. It makes a huge difference and you are just glad for, for what comes through. But I also think you have to factor in the difference in the attitude to those trophies in the 1990s and 10, 15 years later. And this is something that I don't know if we have any younger listeners, but if we do, they might not get that the country came to a stop for the FA Cup final as late as 1997. And to be honest, even the League Cup final, everybody I knew that had any interest in football watched the whole 120 minutes of both games, even though it was, you know, Leicester City were not an attractive team that anyone had any real interest in seeing, even though obviously the Martin O'Neill stuff has, has come about later. So those cup finals were a big deal. Uh, you know, they were. Um, it's bizarre. I actually r- vividly remember watching that, that those uh, Leicester games. You know, at the time, it'd be like, my word, why Same. would you ever ever watch it? But you know, w- watching those highlights back, it's like I remember it like yesterday. You know, in the FA I- Cup final, even more so. Yeah, and I was rooting for Borough in both, well, for all three of those games. 
and as I can remember exactly where I was, I remember going through the emotions with everybody uh, out there, and you support them against Leicester because Leicester were just a horrible team to watch, and you supported them against Chelsea because they were the underdogs, and that's just a very British yeah. thing to do, I suppose. And wow, well, and Chelsea, and they were Chelsea, a very fun like, team to watch. And, you know, <laughs> Chelsea were like the money, you know, money bags team uh, as well, like coming up on the rails, kind of deeply irritating, wasn't it? That they went from being one of the Maybe that's teams thing. in London to. Being yeah, on the crack. To be fair, Chelsea were quite fun to watch at this point yeah. as well. It, I, I, I'd say it's more the Abramovich era where it really kicks in. I mean, you know, it, it was the uh, it, it was the Matthew Harding uh, money, wasn't it, at this point? And, yeah. Um, uh, people still like Chelsea round by me at this point, especially when Zola. Yeah, they, they, you know, they they had some players that were that were quite fun. You know, Zola obviously was very likable. Di Matteo, a fun player, had some. Had some fun players, but you know, still not in the league of of you know Janino and Ravinelli. You know, of course, the other thing is that Middlesbrough have to play that game ultimately, knowing they've been relegated. Yeah, which makes a big difference, doesn't it? Um, I think you know that that's such a sort of difficult thing to get yourself up for, isn't it? You know, if you've if you've cried on the pitch as you've gone down to then get yourself up for a cup final is it must be incredibly difficult it's like when you play i mean i guess it's a bit like you know the third place playoff at the world cup it's always a bit like after the law Bears show isn't it mm. yeah course. i mean that's, yeah sorry the other, i was just going to say the other thing is the uh the dark side of ravenelli comes out across that weekend because although he was brilliant we enjoyed watching him and he had all that passion gone he was a disruptive influence in that middlesbrough team and there are so many stories about Ravinelli and, and maybe how it wasn't the smartest move to bring him in. The one that stands out comes from the cup final weekend where he and Neil Cox get into a fist fight uh, like a day or so before, may even been the morning of the cup final. And everyone else in the side is kind of thinking, oh my God, we've got the biggest game of our careers and we're not even giving ourselves a chance of winning it. And before you know it, they're 30 seconds in and they've conceded. Yeah, it all comes about because Neil Cox says uh, in the build-up to the game, I'm not 100% fit, Ravenelli's not 100% fit, he shouldn't risk either of us. And Ravenelli just takes exception to that. And they end up literally coming to blows. I suppose, I mean, and, and maybe that sort of um, that sort of unprofessional streak, again, it is as I said at the start of the show, it was, it was a season of fine margins, and that's the kind of thing that can that can take you down I mean there's also um there's a couple of games um I think I think it's January or early February where they, they keep getting players suspended and sent off Ravinelli's one of them um and you wonder if you know if they keep their players on the pitch and they avoid these suspensions and things like that do they pick up an, another three points somewhere which would have which would have seen them safe so you know the they can they can point to the three point deduction all they like, but ultimately it was in their hands for so long. Oh yeah, I mean you said any relegated team could say they feel are done by, but ultimately there's always another. There's always a win or two that you probably should have that mm. you know you could have had in your hands and that you you should have you should have secured the points for. Yeah, but you know if that had happened. 
the other team that actually would have gone down instead of them would have had the same thing to say, you know. But you know, just to touch on the on the cup runs, we're only talking, you know, three four years since since Arsenal did the same thing where we went to two cup finals and then we we finished thirteenth I think that season. So it tells you, you know, a lot of the time you would sacrifice you would sacrifice a season for a cup run, you know. A lot of the time, you know, it was yeah, a big yeah. deal to win a trophy, and especially to be FA fighting Cup. on two fronts, you know, and you know, so it it really it's hard to even fathom in 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 today's game, isn't it? You know, but you know, back then it, it really was a thing that that would make or, or break a season, and of course you wouldn't want to go down, and you wouldn't be expecting to go down, but you know it would be all eyes on that trophy at the end of the season. And, you know, if you weren't getting, if you weren't getting the league, there was no, let, let, let's finish in the top four or, you know, teams obviously wanted European football. Absolutely. But not to the point it is now where it's do or die for a team. Mm, the fourth place trophy didn't exist back then. No. And that, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? I think, you know, I think once the third Champions League spot comes in, and then the fourth, you know, I mean, Leeds are the great example, aren't they, of a team that, that risked everything for third place, basically, mm. um, because that suddenly becomes incredibly important financially in a way that a cup run, you know, wasn't. Um, yeah, the FA Cup, I mean, we should we could do a whole episode just on on the FA Cup, couldn't we? But, uh, you know. I think, you know, the last one I remember being like a really big deal was like the 06 one with the Gerrard heroics. Mm. And since then, I think it's really, it's really kind of declined from that point. There may have been some big games since then, but what there hasn't been uh, as any games on that kind of level where the quality has really stamped it. And I think that has hurt it as much as anything else because you, you need periodic reminders of why it matters and it just hasn't really given us too many of those plus half five kickoffs like oh my oh, god, god. Like, don't even get me started on that yeah Dread. mediocre win- venger teams winning half of them that's the problem mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there is the about Wilshire half- final uh, it's like arsenal chelsea <laughs> arsenal chelsea arsenal chelsea come on magic of I mean, the fa cup <laughs> the, the half five thing is a really good point though because when borough play chelsea it's on at three o'clock on a Saturday. The season is over. It's the centerpiece of the English football season. And the TV listings are dedicated to it all day. So from about 12 till about seven o'clock at night is blocked out. For, this is a, a national event. I mean, midday, from midday onwards, you'd be watching the build up. And, you know, Des Lynham or whoever would, would go through all the little skits they were doing to build up for kickoff and then you'd have the abide with me and you'd have the, you know, and you'd have the, uh, the anthems and everything else. And, and, and then it would kick off and it was just a, a really different day back then. I mean, now, I mean, imagine just wait, till, wait till half five to watch Palace for uh, a Van Hal United side. Ugh. Like, honestly, I, I think I wouldn't watch that at three o'clock. Never mind half five. No. No. It's just another game. Like it's, and usually the team that that wins it has already won something. So, or or they're on the back of a really disappointing season. In the case of Arsenal, um, 
so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely lost a, a bit of its lustre. Just um, finally cycling back to uh, to, to Middlesbrough. Where, where does this sort of stand in sort of the, the Premier League stories? I think it's quite a memorable one in terms of the, the sort of what, how they're remembered for being such an enterprising team, but ultimately still getting relegated. It's, it's quite an achievement. It's massively memorable. Um, do, do we feel slightly robbed of the fact that, you know, this team didn't go on to, to do anything more than they did? I mean, the fact that Janino... I know he comes back to, to Borough twice. Um, but the fact that they, we didn't really get to see them go on to do anything more than this. It would have been really interesting to see them keep that team together for another season if they'd stayed up. You know, it would have been really fun to watch them plow up, you know, move on from there and just see how good they could have been, you know, if they'd stayed up. Kept Ravenetti, kept, you know, Janino, maybe kept Emerson and, you know, added a little bit more steel at the back. I mean, you know, Gianluca Festa came in and did that. You know, they're, they're a little bit away from, from stealing Villa's back line. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's... Uh, you, you do think if they had a Southgate or an Echion back there at that point, you know, what 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 could have been what a difference that could have been they do make it because that's the thing we, we haven't said that they do actually come back uh up to the top flight with probably a better balanced team in the end you know they have uh they take merson don't they yeah. um and and they have um you know obviously and gaza for a bit um, you know, they, they kind of you know I jokingly used the phrase Barra Galacticos um last week, but they kind of retain that kind of sense of that Steve Gibson new money about them, you know, for a little while uh before they kind of become boring again. I mean I can have the No, to go back to the original question of do I feel cheated? I I don't because I think the the failure is a huge part of the story and what i tend to look at with this side is as much a cautionary tale as anything else because they were really good the year before when it was a primarily premier league set set up side where they added janino to it and you know the steve vickers was a rock at the back alongside nigel pearson and they had the three kind of almost like red arrow style attack with hignett and barnby and fiatoft and to me, there's an awful lot of be careful what you wish for about this side. And that made them tremendously entertaining. You know, Ravenelli was a fiery kind of character. And Emerson added so much in the middle of the park. But it unsettled the side massively. And, yeah, they spent a huge amount of money on all those players. And even if you add the points that they had taken off them, they'd have been a point worse off. So to me, that's as much as a part of this story and what makes them interesting as anything else. Yes, there's all this wonderful go forward and flair and so on, but there was plenty of flair there anyway. And so, yeah, there's this a glorious failure to use the, the words that Neil used uh, a little while ago. That's so much a part of this story and it's why it's perfect and it would have been almost ruined if they'd actually won one of those cup finals. It would have been worse somehow if they'd won one of them and gone down. And I, I don't really know how how better to express it than that. It's just 
Brian Robson almost found himself in a weird position where no one, not one of those players would have gone to Middlesbrough had Brian Robson not been the manager. And yet when they got there, they found a coach that many of them, including Ravenelli, most famously of all, didn't actually respect very much because he'd come from playing under the likes of Trapattoni and Lippi. And yeah, there's just that sense of you can't have a side that is ultimately three superstars and eight players around them at the end of the day. And that's the lesson, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, you see that all the time in the Premier League over the sort of the next, you know, the next 15 years, really. You see it recur again and again as a, as a, a cautionary tale. But like we said at the beginning, it kind of the story of this Middlesbrough side is the story of the Premier League, ultimately. I mean, that seemed as good a place to wrap it up as any. Well, we've, uh, we've enjoyed very much talking and revisiting this, uh, this Middlesbrough side. Uh, Pete, you've got the schedule. Where are we going next? Next, we're going to almost the complete antithesis of uh, what we've just spoken about in terms of uh, a, a cautionary tale. We're going to um, Sam Allardyce's Bolton side. I mean, it's a cautionary tale, just a different way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They were pretty good. They were pretty good. I'm sure there'll be some. There'll be some JJ Acocha mentions. Everyone will be fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not actually that far removed from um, from Borough, really, is it? Uh, Hell of a lot of flair in there. Mm. Yeah, that 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 team certainly. Some of the other teams, maybe not. Maybe this is what this is what Borough were trying to be. I'm not sure if anyone aspires to be Sam Allardyce, but we'll... Uh... Not these days. <laughs> <laughs> Pint of wine, please, waiter. More they could have done. Week. <laughs> they could have done with aspiring to be more like this Bolton side. Well, we'll find out more about that next week. Um, as for now, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much. <laughs>